Geograve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. In a few moments, we'll be asking Pope Francis's biographer, Austin Ivory, about recent rumours that the Pope will shortly resign. We'll also be introducing our next three programmes, which will come from Galway. We'll have contributors from all over the west of Ireland, and we'll include a series about pilgrimages, ancient and modern. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by the former President of Ireland, Dr Mary McAleese. Since leaving office, she's earned a doctorate in canon law and used it to advocate for reform in the church, particularly regarding the rights of children. She's also just published a new book on 17 Irish martyrs of the 16th and 17th centuries, who, she argues, were remarkable because they died solely for their faith. Mary, during the period of history you're focusing on, there's so much coercion to convert from Catholicism to Protestantism. Is it possible, do you think, to separate faith from politics? That was the big question of their time because the the government refused to see a distinction between religion and politics. They were interwoven. Mm -hmm. And so the priest who... Um, or the bishop um, who um, uh, administered Holy Communion or confession or confirmation, they were seen as political acts of treason against the crown. But today... Because it was seen as aligning yourself with the Pope and the Pope was the enemy of correct. the English now, but, but there, rearrangement. There were, one has to say that at that time, of course, and during those periods, there were uprisings, there was military... Uh, resistance. And so each of these people, each of these martyrs is tested against that. One of the best examples of that um, is, uh, you know, you think of someone like Conor O'Devaney or Archbishop O'Hurley, uh, but Con- Conor O'Devaney is a good example of it. They were, I mean, he, Connor was an Ulsterman, you know, born and reared in Donegal. He was the Bishop of Down and Connor. Um, he relied uh, for his protection. I mean, he was on the run the whole time he was on the island of Ireland. Even as a very elderly man, he was on the run. He very often relied on the chieftains, the O'Neills and the O'Donnells of the time to give him protection. But when when Hugh O'Neill asked him, you know, to give his blessing to militaristic activity against the crown, fighting against the crown. Connor just said, no, that's not my role. I don't do that. That's for other people. It's not for me. I'm a pastor. I'm a minister. I'm a minister of the gospel. I teach that we love one another, that we forgive um, our tormentors. I don't kill. And then, of course, his great tormentor, uh, Sir Arthur Chichester, um, he takes this 80-year-old man, you know, this man in his 80s, who's already been weakened by long years in prison, may I say, very weakened. But he takes him and he puts him through a show trial, which is a kangaroo court in any other language. And he pushes the, the court to, to impose the death sentence, which, it, which they do. And the irony of it is, when he's hanged and disemboweled while still alive, beheaded while still alive up on um, George's Hill on the north side of the Liffey here, instead of terrifying the Catholic community as that event was intended to, they decide they've had enough and they come out in their thousands having kept their heads down, having never, ever revealed their Catholicism, having tried to hide it, they say, you know what? It's time. It's time we stood up and were counted. And so, ironically, 
Conor O'Devaney becomes a heroic figure. Thinking of the, your description just there, Mary, of the, what makes a martyr in the in the context in which you're using that term, and the people who are persecuting. I was very shocked to read in your book the extent, the scale of another category, which is the betrayers, the Correct. people who sold them out. Isn't the people that awful? Who, and this was family. Yeah. I mean, John Devon, you're mm. talking about families. Mm. You look at Margaret Ball. Exactly. You know, you yeah. look at Margaret Ball, a wonderful mm-hmm. woman, you know, born, she gave birth to 20 children, the poor woman. Um, mm-hmm. Five of them alive, two of them became Lord's Mayor of Dublin, very high-blown family, and, you know, really very embedded in, this, in the sophisticated civic life of Dublin. And yet, her, you know, her sons betray, betrayed her. Um, uh, they, One of them, Walter, Lord Mayor of Dublin, um, who, who became a Protestant and uh, by conviction, yes, but couldn't... Um, uh, couldn't live with the fact that his mother was openly um, still a Catholic and a recusant and, ha- ha- you know, opened her door to Catholic priests, which was always a dangerous thing to do in those times. But um, really, in order to secure his own reputation as a genuine Protestant and to secure his preferment, um, he let her die. He let her die in prison, an absolutely de- diabolical death, may I say. She died a really awful death, um, you know, from malnutrition and from the degrading circumstances um, in Dublin Castle. And But he, that, that's not the only story. I mean, many of the priests who were on the run, many of the well-known Catholics um, who harboured them um, were always at risk of being betrayed by a family member, by somebody that had an argument with, by a neighbour. Uh, so it was Catholics who betrayed Catholics for the most part, regrettably. Each martyr in your book has his or her own distinct personality and remarkable story. And among them, there are two bishops, an archbishop, Mm -hmm. several people from religious orders, many priests and six lay people. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that the church survives today, at least partly, because of the common sacrifice made by these faithful I, I, I'm pretty sure that that is the case. Uh, these martyrs were so widespread. I mean, there were so many of them. Incidentally, I mean, these 17 come out of a trawl for martyrs that started with about 500 of them and then was reduced to the 270s and then reduced to 17 in order to get the best cases put as quickly and efficiently as possible to Rome because the attempts to have them canonised or at least certainly beatified had dragged on for over 100, well over 100 years. So, um, so there were many, many more. And I think that those stories, they lodged in the heart um, of, of the ordinary people of the time and their, uh, those who inherited the story from father and mother and grandmother and grandfather and they carried it across the generations. And the, the, the attempt to wipe Catholicism you know, from, from Ireland, essentially, to, to wipe it free of all trace of Catholicism, came up against a really formidable determination from, from laity and priests and people alike. They, the fact that Ireland continued to this present day to have a very sizable Catholic community is in many ways thanks to um, the carrying of that vocation, if you like, that determination from those days whenever it ill-served many people. They died because of it. And because they died, um, the, the faith lived. Turning more deeply 
perhaps into current affairs as they affect the uh, magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, you may well be aware of the rumours that are currently circulating suggesting that Pope Francis might resign um, toward the end of the summer um, or early in the autumn. They're only rumours. But what has happened is a, a sort of surge of interest in summarising what Francis's legacy will be. And the Pope's biographer, Austin Ivory, has been writing about how the Pope's promised reform of the Curia is now nearing completion, at least the blueprint of it, if not the practicalities. Following his publication of Predicate Evangelium in March... Austin reports that Francis says that we are now have a completely different type of church with a humbler, more collegiate leadership. Would you agree? I see no evidence of it yet. I mean, mm. I live in hope of it, but I see no evidence of it. Um, I, I'm not impressed by curial reform. Every pope in the last, uh, from John the Twenty Third, has effected what they called curial reform. Look, the curia is simply um, a, a small civil service dedicated to working for the pope. That's what it is. It exists to help the pope. That's all it is. It's a back room. And it takes its cue from the Pope. That's what it does. Um, so reform of the Curia, um, it's not the same thing as reform of the church, not the same thing as reform of doctrine, not the same thing as reform of teaching. And if you look at what has happened with the, the, the work that's going on now in diocesan synods with a view to um, the synod and synodality, uh, in a year's time, in 2023, in Rome. Uh, it's fascinating. Curial, <laughs> reform of the curia does not feature large in the concerns of the ordinary lay person. Top of their list are things like abuse, Episcopal accountability, the lack of um, involvement of women in decision-making in the church, the lack of involvement of lay people in decision-making, the exclusion of LGBTI, humane vitae's um, unscientific and appalling um, um, failure to um, engage with the people who have to live with the consequences of it. The, everything about us, without us, um, the youth in the church, the um, the poor liturgies, the boring liturgies. If you look at even here in Ireland, across the twenty six dioceses who met, you know, we saw the beginnings of the uh, of what is coming through. Uh, the <laughs> curial reform does not feature. And it doesn't bother me whether the Pope reforms the Curia or not, because the Curia will always take their lead from either the Pope or the bishops, and in particular the Pope. So to that extent, I suppose we can say that um, if the Synod on Synodality follows through on the true desires of the people of God and listens to them, then maybe change will happen. And Francis, having called that synod and having, you know, having encouraged synods all over the world here in Ireland and Italy and Australia and South America, um, having, having done that, that was a good day's work. Whether, <laughs> whether it gives the outcome he desired is another matter. Mary McAleese, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. You're more than welcome. Austin Ivory is former deputy editor of The Tablet and a biographer of Pope Francis, with whom he co-authored the recent bestseller, Let Us Dream, The Path to a Better Future. Austin, you are very welcome to The Leap of Faith. It's good to be with you, Siobhan.
We'll turn to your own work with Pope Francis in a moment. But before we do, how would you respond to Mary McAleese's remarks at the end of her interview there? Well, I mean, Mary just doesn't get it. I mean, she, she just is so um, distant from what is really happening and has been happening over the last nine years <clears throat> in this pontificate. I mean, this idea that curial reform is a sort of pointless backroom exercise. In fact, it is the mandate that Francis was given by the other cardinals because the way that power and governance was being exercised in the church back in 2012 was was regarded as, by the whole church, by the universal church in the local church, as being an obstacle to evangelization. So it's been a massive task uh, to convert the way in which the church understands and exercises power. And it isn't just about the Vatican, it is explicitly about the whole church. And it's there in the document that actually this is a model for the reform of the whole church. And it's being followed and it will influence, has already influenced uh, the wider church. So, um, yeah, I just I just don't, don't think she, she gets it at all. I think perhaps uh, Mary McAleese is pushing a, a reform agenda, which isn't that far out from what is being expressed by many people who are participating in in the Synod on synodality. Do you think that the Synod will produce reforms such as the ones that she identifies, um, as well as structural changes that the Pope's uh, nine years in office has, as you say, uh, furnished? And those reforms are, you know, the ones in her mind are to do with lay leadership in the church, acceptance of LGBT people, alteration of humani vitae, changes in teaching, looking for reforms on these things. Matters to quite a lot of Catholics. Yeah, sure. Well, look, in terms of the reforms that we are talking about and that she wants to see and that people want to see, I mean, this is where we have to be clear about what we mean by reform. I mean, if we're talking about change, well, it depends on the kind of change. Now, it's true that the Synod is not about and and cannot be about simply sort of changing church teaching. That's not the way it works. But it is about people expressing a vision of how the church should be and to critique the way the church is at the moment. It is supposed to be an exercise in listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. So it's an exercise in intense listening to each other to hear what the Spirit is saying through our experience and therefore what uh, what this is saying about where the church should be going, just as in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, that's how the church was. And Francis has been explicit, is explicit in the new constitution to say that when people look at the church and the way it's run, they should recognise the church of the Acts of the Apostles. That, you know, the, the very first Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15 of Acts. That's how the first decisions are made. You know, Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm leaving you, but I'm leaving you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead you, will guide you into the truth. Now, if we take that seriously, and Francis really does, then we have to have means of assembling and listening and discerning and making decisions together. This doesn't challenge the existing church authorities, but it understands that the way that authority is exercised is collaborative. Uh, it's about co-responsibility. It's about communal discernment. That is a very, very different, very different uh, uh, exercise of governance and power from the kind of command and control model of the church, which crept up in the modern era through in the last centuries. So Predicate Evangelium, which was published in March and set out Francis's reform of decision-making structures in the church, which, as you say, was his main mandate when he was elected in 2013. Um, is is now out in the world. So is Francis about to tell us that his job is now done? 
Well, I, I mean, there, there have been speculations about uh, resignation because he's been in a wheelchair. He's had uh, a torn ligament, which has been extremely painful and extremely debilitating, and that's why seeing him in a wheelchair, people start to say, oh, you know, is he about to resign? I mean, the difficulty here is that when you say, will the Pope resign? Well, he himself says, yes, he will, because he said that that's what Benedict did uh, in 2013. And, of course, by doing that, uh, Benedict changed forever the institution of the papacy. So from now on, every pope must consider when to stand down if they reach a point where uh, the, they believe that they, they don't have the, the health, the capacity to carry on in the way that the, the, the position demands. And Francis is very conscious of that, and he's made clear that, that, that when the time comes, he will make uh, that decision, but that time is not, is not now. I suppose one of the things that has fueled rumours um, of, of Pope Francis's impending resignation is not just seeing him in a wheelchair um, for the reasons you describe, but also that he has called a consistory, uh, which is when cardinals are created, for August, which is a very unusual time to call a consistory. Um, and he's scheduled prayers at Aquila, which people are reading all sorts of things into because that's where the last medieval pope to be renunciated as pope um, has his shrine. So the question then is, is, is when? Do you have an inkling of when the Pope will resign? Well, I think I think the the idea that these things that you've just mentioned, which indeed have set off a kind of, you know, silly season fever of speculation, uh, particularly among certain kind of Italian commentators who just love to interpret everything as a sort of you know, sign that oh, you know, we we connect this and that, and oh, you know, it's 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 a famous kind of Italian church sport, really. I mean, when I first saw that, I thought it was ridiculous. First of all, August consistory, sure, yeah, there hasn't been one for you know for a hundred years, but when has that ever stopped Francis? You know, in other words. It's obviously a convenient time to have a, a, a consistory. You bring together the world's cardinals in Rome at the end of the summer. Uh, so, you know, the, the, it's a good time to do it. Uh, so I think that's... And then the fact that he's going to Aquila, well, that's been in the diary for some time. It's the place, of course, where the devastating earthquake and Francis is very, is very fond of it. He wants to go there to make a pilgrimage. The fact that Celestine V is buried there, who was <laughs> the previous pope who resigned, and the fact that Benedict visited it two years before he resigned, it's all, it's all kind of just coincidence. And his schedule has not let up at all. And I see this is a papacy, a pontificate still in full flow. Austin Ivory former deputy editor of The Tablet and biographer of Pope Francis. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. For the next three weeks, our programmes will come from Galway. In preparation for this, we'll be talking tonight with Dr Damien Bracken from the School of History at University College Cork, who's an expert on the roots of pilgrimage in early Ireland. Damien, you're very welcome. Thank you, Siobhan. The west of Ireland is host to quite a few pilgrimages, older ones such as Skelligvickle or Crowpatrick and newer ones like Tanakh, and of course ancient local ones to saints, shrines and wells. Is the west of Ireland unique in this or are there as many pilgrimages in other parts of the country? Yeah, I think, I think pilgrimage and the desire to go on pilgrimage is part of the human experience. And it always has been, um, whether you're talking about contemporary Ireland or ancient Ireland, or even in pre-Christian times, pil pilgrims were things people did uh, voluntarily and sometimes involuntarily. Um, 
because going on a pilgrimage takes you out of your the, the usual course of um, your everyday life. And when you're in that context, you ask questions. Um, you ask questions about about priorities. Um, it's a journey. It's, it's it's a journey of discovery, and it's also a journey of self-discovery. So whether you're looking at this in the west of Ireland or any other part of Ireland or any other part of Europe, or globally, it's it's something that people feel the need to do, and they obviously must derive some benefit from it because they've been doing it uh, for millennia. You mentioned involuntarily. How is someone made go on a pilgrimage if they don't want to? Yeah. Um, pilgrimage in the Christian tradition is seen as a sort of, it's a, it's a deprivation. So you're sort of stepping out outside of your usual life, but you're also stepping out outside the comforts of your life. You know, the support of a family, um, roof over your head, um, three square meals a day, uh, that comes to an end. So pilgrimage is entered into voluntarily because um, you see it as a form of penance and as a way of ultimately getting to your pilgrimage destination and then getting to heaven, hopefully. But sometimes uh, the forms of pilgrimage that people undertook were also forms of punishment that, which were meted out to people who, who had offended against society, who had committed crimes. Uh, one form of penance was casting adrift, you know, where if you had committed a very serious crime in early Irish society or Western society, you were put into a boat, you were not given a sail, you were not given a, a rudder, you were not given a, uh, um, you were not given oars, um, and uh, it was a method of exacting punishment on the wrongdoer, you know, getting them out of society. And sometimes uh, there are instances of Christians who underwent this voluntarily. They actually got into a boat and were pushed off into the, into the blue yonder and God would make his decision as to what their fate would be. And, you know, we might think people who would do that are strange, but in, in ancient societies, these people were given a very high status. They were looked up to. And where would um, pilgrims be going on pilgrimage, where would they be travelling to in early Ireland? It could be to a local shrine. Um, it could be to uh, the r reputed resting place of a local saint. Um, and you went there to come into contact with, uh, with the holy. So that the saint had made holy his place because holy things, good things happen there. Uh, so you wanted to be associated with that. Um, if if you wanted to go even further, uh, you could go. You could travel further in Ireland, or you could travel beyond Ireland. In early Ireland, there were grades of pilgrimage: uh, red, white, and blue. Blue pilgrimage. They were color coded. So the most extreme was red, and that was a pilgrimage which which ended in your your demise. Um, but there were less extreme versions of pilgrimage as well. Um, so you could make that journey uh, to Rome, or you could make that journey to, to, to Jerusalem. Um, there are accounts from the 9th century of journeys made by Irish people uh, to Jerusalem, and they give an account of what they saw on the way, um, passing through um, Egypt. They saw these enormous, these enormous buildings, which they describe as, as square at the bottom, and rising to a point at the top, 
and they say, well, these were the barns that were constructed um, by Joseph in the time of, uh, of the drought, in the reign of, of Pharaoh. Uh, that's how they saw them. Of course, we would recognise them today as, as, um, as pyramids. Um, so you have these accounts of Irish people journeying far into the east. You also have accounts of Irish people journeying far into the north, uh, not just across the land, but across the sea journeying up into the into the islands off the north coast of, of Scotland, um, up, up, to, up to the Hebrides and the Orkneys and the Faroe Islands, perhaps, even further beyond. And the same writer um, says that he knows of islands beyond that that Irish people reached, which were so far into the north that in midsummer it never got dark at night. He says, it, it, it remains so lightsome in the, in the middle of the night that you could pick fleas from your shirt. Uh, and he says these are he says these are so remote that I don't know the name for them. Dr. Damien Bracken from the School of History at University College Cork. Thank you very much for joining us on the Leap of Faith. You're very welcome, Siobhan. And just before we end, I'm delighted to be joined by Julie Langan, a fiddle player from Newport County Mayo, who, along with some fellow musicians, will be treating us to tunes relating to pilgrimage and other faith expressions in the West of Ireland over the coming weeks. Julie, if the desire to go on pilgrimage has always been part of the human experience, music has too, hasn't it? Yes, I'd definitely say so, yeah. I was reminded of that uh, Shannockle, Isfiar Perth na Padjer, which means um, it's a tune is better than a prayer. And I'm thinking, well, I suppose in our way of looking at it, that's the way we we would see it as musicians, that um, we, if someone, sometimes you miss a funeral or you've missed someone is sick or something, we'd often say, oh, I'll play you a tune, mm-hmm. which I suppose is like someone saying, I, I, I'll play you a, a prayer or I'll say a prayer for you or something. I suppose it's just appreciating or, you know, showing your compassion to, or to something, you know. Your solidarity with them, your solidarity, yes. wish for them. It's yes. lovely. It's, it's a gorgeous Shanachal proverb. You wouldn't fancy playing us a tune to that name, would you? Yes, I see. I, I have heard that Shanachal for years. But the Kilfenora band, um, I think back in the 70s, they have lost their jigs, the Kilfenora jigs, and there's one five-parter and they added an extra two parts. And that seven part is known as Sfiar Perth na Padjar. Fantastic. I believe, I'm told... So I could play that if you like. That would be fantastic. Thank you. That's all for tonight. Thank you for listening. And please join us next week for The Leap of Faith. Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. The broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland and the producer was Sheila O'Callaghan.